0: Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining let's get started with Cassie and Alan Wildman. Alan, thank you so much for joining us here today for the next episode of my podcast, Cassie and now Alan, you and I've met each other from the wonderful world of LinkedIn and because of our mutual interest, but I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself as your own intro
1: yeah love to, Cassie. thanks for having me. Love the podcast. Love to be here. So, like you said, my name's Alan. I have worked in privacy compliance a little bit before that, which kind of touches privacy for a while now and really focused on privacy these days as well with my with the group Inc consulting as well as a i which you know in the past couple of years is really getting close to privacy in many ways. And so I think some of that's why we kind of connected. We have mutual interests, as you said. And yeah, I'm happy to be here and talk about some of those things. Maybe some other things.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Alan, again, for joining us now. One thing I do want to talk about is we're both active on LinkedIn, and I love the level of levity that you bring to your content. You frequently post privacy-related memes, and I actually want to start with talking about memes because not only am I interested, and I know you're the same way, interested in AI, but also other emerging tech out there. AI is just the beginning. It's the wave that's going to be rolling for a long time. And some ideas that are starting to bounce around are, in essence, potentially the replacement of our current smartphones, things like the humane AI pin, and also just like spatial computing, things like that. And when I mentioned to my husband the humane AI pin, I had him watch the demo And his first comment was, well, what about the memes, you know, and really the humane AI pin is kind of like an AI assistant that's screenless. So it's, it could serve as like your phone, you can take phone calls, you can have it run searches for you, blah, blah, blah. But without a screen, and my husband said, no, I got to have my memes. So is this kind of our video killed the radio star type of movement? Do you think that's going to happen? What,
1: what about the memes, Alan? Yeah, that's uh it's worth asking. It's important that some, well no one think of the memes. It's important to ask. You know memes there's there's two like ways to think about this, right? One, they're just very funny. And that's a fact and that's just, you could just say that and people be like, "Yeah, memes are great. They're really funny." But there's another aspect to it which not to overthink something that's kind of simple, sometimes absurd, but funny. But but they're more than just kind of funny. They have really become Shorthand for the way we talk to each other now, in a lot of ways, even having broken into the professional setting to some degree, right? Not every setting, but it's a succinct way to kind of communicate something. It's a way to communicate something kind of just to a community. You got to be in on either what's being referenced or kind of the punchline, one of those two things at least, or you're not going to get it. And that's some of the alert to memes as well, right? Is that I can have somewhat of a closed conversation. People in the know, if you know, you know, you're going to get it. And if not, you'll just kind of keep going. And it's a way to be a little, I think you started off talking about just like being lighthearted. The levity maybe is what you used. Some of the things, especially that you and I talk about a lot when it comes to work, we're talking about privacy or legal things. They can get heavy. They can get boring real fast. <laughs> and you know, a meme is kind of an outlet to be like, hey, we can talk about serious st- stuff, but we don't have to be over serious all the time about it. So yeah, you take something like an AI pin where you're going to remove that. Uh, it's not the end of the world, but memeing is kind of a way we like to quickly talk and quickly give opinions on things. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a con. If you're going to be using a new tool that can't facilitate that, I'm not here for it personally. Some other people mm-hmm. might not be as well, like your husband. Maybe.
0: Yeah. My husband has full chat group messages that it is really, I think, 95% memes, which, you know, and that gets to your, your point. It, it, it's a, a microcosm of a communication style. And arguably it's part of our culture at this point. So, and, and as we're seeing, I know you're in the privacy world, I'm in e-discovery and litigation, uh, and one thing I deal with is production of data, and we're increasingly seeing chat messages be part of that. And something we're starting to deal with is, well, is is a meme response, a GIF response, is that Responsive is it not? You know, and then we're starting to see the courts where courts are having to interpret, at the very least, what an emoticon is—thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up—which, which found that that did accept terms of a contract. I have no doubt as more of these chat message-type communications being used more and more in discovery and making its way into court, we're going to need meme experts. So, Alan, are you ready? To take up the banner, like I, I couldn't think of anyone else to be a meme expert than you. Have you thought of that as a second, second career if Someone needs,
1: yeah. If you need the expert opinion, if you're asking yourself, "What did he or she mean by this?" which is a popular meme in and of itself, I'm ready. Call on me, I'll let you know. I'm ready to be sworn in, and 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 settle it for sure.
0: Okay. Okay, great. I'm glad that we have that settled and pinned down for the audience. Um, But it is kind of lighthearted and funny, but, you know, people, we do, we do like to chat. And I think with chat messages becoming more and more common, especially after COVID, when Teams and Zoom became more prevalent, more used, that really, I think, is a source of kind of, I I kind of liken it to whenever I first started doing e-discovery, People in corporations maybe didn't use their email as singularly focused on work as they should have. And frequently there were were, were messages that weren't that great. And I feel like a lot of people have that training in place. Now there's more of an awareness of if you don't want to show it to your grandmother, maybe don't put it in an email. That hasn't translated to short messages yet. So uh, I think there's going to be a wealth of of meme and and content like that. in the world. So anyone out there using chat messages or whatever for work, watch out. You you might have to explain what that meme meant in the future. Well, I do want to talk about privacy. I've, I've kind of bogarted the conversation about e-discovery and, and memes, but, and you touched on this in your intro of yourself. I mean, you've been working in privacy for for a while. You're heavily involved in IAPP, a great privacy-focused organization, an international organization. You have a ton of, of IAPP certifications, and we're starting to see AI really kind of take up, pick up steam as the the data issue du jour, right? Like whereas before privacy was like heavily the focus, and now I feel like AI has maybe brought attention to privacy in a way that people weren't really paying attention to it as much before. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well, Alan, just the general human consumer?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, you know, something new comes out, you get more coverage, articles on TV, whatever, more people talking about it. So you're going to get more awareness, you're going to get more exposure to a topic. And an interesting thing with AI, again, privacy people people maybe like myself, people working in privacy, you know, we have been thinking about potential privacy harms for a while because we're trying to support organizations. We're trying to do what's right by consumers and the rights that they may have based on where they're living. The average person, maybe not so much. And even if they're aware of it, it's still in that like potential harm bucket, right? That, oh, so a company kind of profiled me in a way that's incorrect. And so kind of their digital avatar, I'm sitting in their CRM instance, they think X, Y, Z about me and the Z part's not really right. But the average person might say, well, who cares? Like nothing's happening to me because of that. They just made a mistake. They made a bad inference. But you look at some AI tools, some of those, when those go awry or are used incorrectly or improperly, you can get some more and I'll just borrow this from science, not potential harms, but actually like kinetic harms. Now someone maybe is using my face to impersonate me or my voice, trying to impersonate me to get money, to trick someone in my family, whatever it is, that's real time. Like I'm being harmed. Everybody would kind of agree with that, right? It's not this theoretical potential, well, something bad could happen. It's actually a problem. I don't like it. I'm not crazy about it. And so some of the potential things that AI could be used for improperly, people are quicker to identify with that and be like, no, 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 I'm not on board with that. And so then they start asking, okay, well, what else could be out there? How else are people using my information? And wow, there's all kinds of information about myself. I didn't even know that companies had. And so it kind of just is a domino to get people thinking about it more. And you see people starting to at least say they're considering privacy when it comes to brands they interact with, things that they purchase. I don't know if we've really seen it truly affecting purchasing behavior yet, but when asked about it, the majority of people are saying, yeah, I think about it when, I, when I'm when i buying this or I'm interacting with that.
0: So let's talk about the whole image being taken of individuals and that kind of being a moment. And I do think it is that Black Mirror, Joan Awful episode that really, I think, consolidated that concept for a lot of people. It seems like there's a lot of law and policy related issues that need to get caught up to the technology that's already running in full force. So, it, and I know that, you know, I don't expect you to recite all of that on there, but do you see that as a big focus of privacy professionals, you know, seeing what we need to do to make sure broader rights are available for people?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, as, as you said, AI is exploding and it's outpacing the regulations which is not uncommon. That's usually how business or innovation works. Things get created or new things come into play. And then people kind of react like, okay, this is good for a lot of reasons, but we need to rein it in maybe over here in this way. And AI is no different, I think, to to a large degree. And there's a bit of a vacuum, at least a perceived vacuum as who are the people that are going to kind of take over this? Who's going to be in charge of AI governance? And for, for better or for worse, I think privacy professionals, in a large part, are, are stepping forward saying there's a lot of overlap here, between AI governance and other data protection, other information governance work, so we're well suited to try to stand in the gap here and can try and handle this. And there's naturally a lot of interest, I think. Privacy professionals are interested in the rights of people when it comes to their information, and AI tools by themselves are not necessarily privacy issues. But they often process so much personal information, they become kind of privacy adjacent really, really fast, right? And so, yeah, I think it's natural that privacy pros are saying, we can help with this because the tools are cool. They do some amazing stuff, but governance is needed and we're ready to go.
0: And, you know, I think that there's a, like you said, there has been a vacuum, but I do think the privacy group groups out there and leaners are really you know stepping in I know IapP has a new AI certification out there it's not live it you can't take it yet but there are materials available for you to to start training on so I think that um if anyone's interested in checking that out you know definitely check out the IapP website and and things like that but you know I I want to kind of go to the flip side. Let, let's not just look at AI as a bad thing, right? Let's look at, are there ways that AI can be used to help with AI compliance? And I'm going to throw out two words, one of which I probably will not pronounce correctly. Uh, and I would love for you to talk about them. A, a potential counter to da- your your data being out there in large data sets is the anonymization of data. And then the pseudonym, pseudonymization, pseudonymization of data. Pseudonymization. And I know you, mis-
1: you, were, you were right there. That's all
0: good. Okay. Right there. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about what those are and how companies are kind of starting to leverage those concepts into their, their data that they're, they're holding?
1: Yeah, for sure. They're similar, right? Uh, but, a, but a bit different pseudonymization, you, you might hear the word pseudonym in there, right? Like when, mm-hmm. when an author writes a book under a fake name, a pseudonym, right? And so basically, let's say you give me some information. I've got some personal data about you. Maybe you can like, imagine a spreadsheet and I've got 10 you know, pieces of data about you. I kind of give those 10 pieces of data you know, other values. And then I'm working off those, but I can go back to the original ones if I need to. But in, but in some ways, and there's different ways to do it, right? But I'm, I'm using pseudonyms for those types of, of data I have on you. Whereas anonymization, I am really pulling out those identifying things about you. And I'm going to just, and I'm going to use the data that has been anonymized. So anything that could be tied back to you. It's, it can't be anymore, right? Because I've anonymized this data. Unlike using the pseudonym, that's that's kind of oversimplifying both of them. But that, that in some ways is how you add that layer of protection. Because now I'm not just using your name, your address, your social security number. I'm either pulling out the things that identifying you and using the ones that could be anybody, or I've kind of masked them, right? And as far you know, your question: How could you know? Could these tools be used? For that, well, sure, so much of you know what we're talking about, we talk about AI today, uh, is automating a bunch of smaller tasks, tedious tasks, or things that maybe are complex, but if we can just write it all out at the beginning, then we can rapidly produce it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not far to fetch to think of someone designing a tool that I can put on my computer, and when I go to websites it automatically is working in the background, doing some automation to add some noise to whatever might be being tracked about me, to add extra information or to mask parts of my information. We know that the online tracking technologies are robust and they're everywhere. And so could someone devise a tool that's kind of working to you know, add noise to some of those things or hide some of that information that's being pulled from me? Absolutely. Um, Another one maybe you could think about, I mean, it's really anything, um, data subject requests where, you know, people that have a consumer privacy law that gives them some of these rights where they can write to a company and say, hey, what info do you have on me? Or delete what you have on me or opt me out of profiling. Uh, could someone have a, an AI tool that, hey, every month scan my credit card statement. And when you see the first purchase for a new merchant, automatically write up a DSAR request to see what that company has on me and send it off to them. Like you could do that. You could automate some of these things. So every time you buy something from someone new in 30 days, see what they have on me. I want to see what profile you built on me. I want to see what you're using my information for. Um, yeah, just, I mean, you could, anything that you do manually, you could probably devise an AI tool to start doing it for you. And you're now you're really kind of increasing you're leveraging those tools to to support your privacy in some really cool ways as well,
0: yeah. And I wasn't even thinking of tools from from the consumer perspective of what tools the consumer could use to protect their rights. I was even thinking more on, you know companies have all of this data maybe about about consumers or clients or or things like that. And what could they do, you know, I, I, of course, am thinking if there is ever a data breach and data is compromised for a company, what could they have done to the data that they're holding on to that minimizes that risk before that breach even happens? So could an AI tool be used to go in and determine, like, how to anonymize it, how to pseudonymize it? Oh, gosh, I can't say that word at all. Pseudonymize. Anyway, never mind. I'm not going to waste podcast time with that. But um, is that something that you're hearing companies like leverage at all to minimize that
1: risk? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I don't know that there's a public drive. We're hearing about companies starting to say, hey, we got to leverage this to protect ourselves. You understand why they might not want to be talking about, hey, we have this innate risk that we're really trying to lower right now. But to some degree, this has been around for for a while to some degree, you know before AI was the hot term to brand everything with you know for a while we called everything like smart, and we don't use that term anymore because now AI is what we need to use for everything to get people excited. um you think of like health systems or hospitals, just as an example for a long time, I've had scripts running to see, hey, are the right people at our hospital looking at the right records so they could see that, hey. You know, Alan works in this part of the hospital. He doesn't work in oncology. Why is he going into these patients that are in the oncology department and looking at their records? I could flag that and then someone could come ask me, hey Alan, like what are you doing? And I've got to say, hey, no, I was actually doing something work-related or you busted me. It was a it was a celebrity patient and I just wanted to see what was going on with them. Um, that's been around for a minute. You could definitely take something similar and put it in any organization, who within the company is looking at what type of data, who's going into what data lake, who's accessing what, you know, wherever we're storing it, and is that appropriate or not? And you can automate a lot of that rather than, you know, pulling logs and just saying like, okay, I'm going to manually look through who's doing what. Yeah, there's potential for AI to, to do a lot of that stuff and feel like you've got more control, you've got more visibility, I think, as a company as to how's your data moved moving through the org and who's using it
0: something that i know i've experienced is people often think that data is more organized than it actually is and i know this from having worked on data breach incident responses where before a notice is sent out that a breach has occurred you have to in- investigate the data that that was believed to have been impacted and you have to find all the individuals and you have to find the data elements and that is not as easy as people think so we often use AI tools to help identify those data points. It's not 100% perfect, but um it, it's just an interesting, you know, thought exercise in that people think data is this pristine, pure, you know, well-organized thing and it often isn't and that make that adds to the challenge of good data privacy hygiene. Do not you find that too?
1: Yeah, I mean for for something that's so valuable. You're absolutely right. Data, that's every company wants it and they want as much as they can get of it. But it is, once you get it, it's just kind of tossed everywhere. And it's not organized, like you said. Then there's the whole concept of structured versus unstructured data. We go back to some of your chat messages and people not even realizing, you no, know, we're talking about all of it and we wanna know where your data is. So yeah, any tools that can help organizations. I mean, you think that, the drive to do that would already be there because if this is what's driving your business, you'd want to know where is it at all times and how is it being used, but it's simply not the case, like you said. Probably because there's so much of it and it comes in so fast. And at that point orgs are just scrambling to kind of keep up with it. But yeah, you're right. It it's quite often a mess.
0: Well, and I also think we're always looking ahead. We're always looking for the new data, the next thing, the next day and we're not really good at backwards looking and kind of cleaning and, and keeping things organized. So I think it's not anything intentional, anyone, you know, being a, a bad person. It's just we're looking ahead to the next thing. So, Alan, I know that GPT, chat GPT specifically, is kind of, you know, the next trendy thing. I know you've played around with a custom GPT tool, maybe more than one. Um, And there's some unique privacy issues around, you know, data breaches and GPTs. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience building that custom GPT and what privacy issues might be around that?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, I played around with building a custom GPT. It was real silly. I think I made, you know, a robot based on Wally. So all he does is give you cleaning tips and talk to you about Hello, Mm -hmm. Dolly. That's all he's allowed to do. And so it's fun, though. These things are that's first. First thing to think about: you think about privacy and, and GPT tools. They are really cool. They're fun, and people are going to use them. Like this is a fact. Um, there's a there's I think maybe some people saying we will just prohibit people from using them. We will try to lock them down on our on our you know internal devices. And organizations have to make that choice, I guess. But you cannot feel comfortable if that's the only step you've taken. Just saying people don't use this because they will use their own devices, they will, nothing unlocks innovation in people, like being told they can't do something. (laughs) And so this is a great question because you wanna tell people, how can you use this appropriately? And so say, hey, like use ChatGBT, however, do not put any customer information into the tool. Don't put any business confidential information into the tool. Be careful putting your own information into the tool, at least be informed about what happens if you do that, and then make that own choice with your own information. You know, Privacy in a big way is about choice, and even privacy pros make choices sometimes to say, yeah, I'm going to turn over some of my information to this company because I want what they're giving me, and I get to make that choice. So making sure people know what choices they are allowed to make, which ones they're not supposed to make when it comes to other people's info, when it comes to business confidential info. And, you know, this is really privacy related, I guess, but it's it's the big thing with GPT, right? You know, your level of assurance when you do get a response, especially if it's work related, you know, taking things with a grain of salt. Just as, just as you would with a Google search. And if the search came back on some random person's blog, and they kind of just gave an answer to your question, you're going to read that and you'll be like, okay, but I'm not necessarily going to take this as like the gospel, right? Same thing with some GPT responses, because they're doing basically the same thing, except they're looking at every blog that's out there and every article and kind of giving you an amalgamation back. And so using those things with a grain of salt, but there's a ton of practical uses and i think it's it's unwise to tell people just don't use it cuz now they're just going to go wild west with it and you're going to miss out on some of the productivity you could be having without them
0: i think the point you raise about people are just going to use their own device I, I i mean that's the concern i have with that kind of a very strict policy you know it, especially without an explanation as to why there's that strict policy because What's going to happen is device creep, which no one wants. Privacy professional doesn't want, e-discovery professional doesn't want, and you're going to have people doing work on personal devices, which is not great, you know, for multiple reasons. So I think the key here is education, like letting people know why there may be limits. Like there may be times where we don't want to use it, or or this is why we're not letting you use it. I think that's really important, that context just... uh, helps with that AI literacy, which I know is kind of turning into a bit of a buzzword itself. The last topic I want to talk about is the EU AI Act, at least as much as we know about it. That's really kind of being a catalyst for moving forward, I think, a lot of AI regulatory conversations. And, you know, who knows, we may have an AI federal law before we have a federal law on data privacy in the U.S. Do you see this as a mirror or an echo to the rollout of GDPR? What was that, 10 plus years ago?
1: There's similarities, but but there's differences too, right? You look at something like GDPR, and it is really focused on innate human rights, that people have certain rights, and therefore you, if you're interacting with them, are obligated to do A, B, and C because of these rights. It's kind of all driven off of that. Whereas, you know, what we've seen with the EU AI Act is kind of about product. It's about how do you make this product to be safer. Uh, and th- there's the difference there. The similarity is looking at risks. You know, in the GDPR world, you know, you'd be tasked to, hey, you're processing data in a certain way. You need to evaluate the risk to the people who, who own that data, who that data belongs to. And depending what that risk is, you've got certain actions you need to take. That's pretty similar to the EU AI Act, right? Look at your model. Look at your AI tool, your product. And what's the risk? Is it minimal risk, limited, high risk? Is it unacceptable risk? And depending on your answer, now, Here's how you need to respond to that. So that's where you see a pretty close similarity is that, you know, companies, organizations are obligated to, to evaluate the risk themselves. And so you got to have some internal honesty when you're doing that. And just because something has risk doesn't mean it's necessarily a disaster, but you got to show how you're mitigating those risks as well. And so I think that's where the AI, the AI Act is looking at those tools and saying, what's the risk? And how are you going to control for that so that you are not going to harm people with these systems that you're putting out there?
0: Are there any lessons we can learn from the rollout of GDPR that, you know, we can apply or or maybe make the learning curve a little bit easier for the EU AI Act
1: whenever it rolls out? Wow, that's an interesting question. You know, it's hard, it's hard to say because GDPR has there's a ton of different opinions about GDPR and how great is it or how helpful was it? Is it not enough? Does it go too far? And people have their own opinions about that. And I can't tell them whether they're right or wrong about that. You know, you look at something like GDPR and what it did with data transfers. And a lot of ways people looked at GDPR and said, we got to just stop. We got to stop sending this stuff to these other countries. But then you saw some people, consumers kind of coming back and saying, no, I'm okay with this. I want to be able to use this product. I want to be able to do these things. I don't care if it's going to the US. And so you had a little bit of friction, right? Like, are we following like letter of the law when it comes to GDPR? Or are we listening to the data subject saying, no, I want to use the social media. Same thing across, you know, example, you look at something like chat GPT. This isn't an AI act issue, but it really gets popular. And some countries immediately were like, we're not allowing it in our country and just kind of shut it down and put a ban on it until we figure out how it's handling data. And a lot of people, I think, again, even people in that country said, no, like we want this. This is a powerful tool. We want access to it. Again, I can't speak to whether that's the right decision or wrong decision, but that's what people are saying. And so if there's any maybe lesson learned, it's that, Yeah, you're going to see what's the language of the act, and then it's going to take a little bit of time to say, what do the people covered under the act? How do they feel about it? Are they happy with these interpretations, or do we need uh, some tweaking, so to speak, so that we feel protected, but we're still getting to use the tools that we want to, to use?
0: We're getting here at the close, Alan. We've gone from memes to GDPR, you know, and everything in between. Uh, What are some of your closing thoughts or what is your closing thought to the audience about, you know, privacy and emerging tech in the coming year?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe just echo some of the stuff we talked about and that these it will work best if there is more of a partnership with more optimism moving forward. Whenever things that are new or that feel new and AI feels new maybe because of some of the things it can do now, maybe just because of the way it's marketed. It feels new, I think, to people. When things feel new, if you're coming from like a risk-based perspective, there's a lot of potential to kind of be a doomer and to just want to shut it down, prohibit it, but that is not going to stop the momentum of the product. It does not work like that. And so the way to ensure that these things stay awesome and that people creating them are responsible and accountable, is to really be a partner with them. To kind of jump on board doesn't mean you have to be all in and ignore any risks that you see, but be more of a partner rather than a hurdle. That's my opinion. Again, some people may come down a little harder on some of that stuff, but I think you want to be at the table. And if you kind of love to just say no to everything and shut everything down, you. Don't you're not heard. You're just not invited anymore and people will go around you and now you're not accomplishing what you wanted either. And so I think having an attitude of optimism, cautious, if you want cautious optimism uh, and knowing that some healthy friction is okay, and we can get to a place where these things are really cool, do amazing things and are still responsible, that is possible and to have that mindset.
0: Well, I love that. I love the optimism. I love the 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 problem solving. Get your get to that table and participate mentality, Alan. We're both the same there. So um, Alan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. I know I've learned a thing or two from you, and I'm sure the audience has as well. So thank you for joining us, Alan. And to the audience. Thank you. And look forward to having you join the next episode of Cassie and